And uh, we find ourselves in the midst of sort of a road trip uh, of sorts. Uh, who likes road trips? Road trip? Some of you don't. I thought everyone would. Why do we like road trips? Uh, Egypt, uh, Israel's on a road trip from Egypt to Sinai and then to the Promised Land. They're moving from slavery to freedom. Uh, we don't usually do that on our road trips, but we do take road trips. Uh, who likes road trips because you're actually just going somewhere? You just like to go somewhere. Hands, please, if you like to just go somewhere. Who likes road trips primarily because you're traveling with other people? Okay. Who likes road trips because you like long, grueling drives where you need to pee <laughs> and uh, you eat bad food and you're driving through barren wilderness where there's nothing? Who likes those? Yeah, one of you. It's two of you. It's two of you. Yeah. By the way, yeah, you're both in the middle of nowhere. You're just going home, actually, is what you're doing. Uh, I just described your home. Uh, I'm from there something like that as well. Well, uh, we're going to see that Israel is taking a similar road trip, and it's through uh, a pretty hard place, uh, a wilderness. And uh, we're going to see it's the kind of place where God often takes us as well. So our text is Exodus 16. It's a bit of a long text. Please follow along as I read. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full... Because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as he spoke, as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat. In the morning you shall be filled with bread, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it is, or what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. The people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it, it was an omer. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. That's amazing. That sounds awesome. I could go for that. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and... Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. 
Now on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow's a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. All that's left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. They laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. On the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. All right, let's pray together. Great Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us this day our hunger for you our hunger in general, and uh, direct our stomachs and our minds and our hearts to Jesus, uh, the bread of life. And fill us with it, we pray. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're talking about road trips, and I'm actually a terrible road trip partner uh, for lots of reasons. I'll just give you four. One, I'm pretty committed to not taking long ones. I like short road trips. I can never do more than 10 hours. Uh, secondly, if I'm not driving, I'm sleeping. Like, and not because it's a conscious decision. I just can't help it. I just fall asleep immediately and will sleep the entire time, and uh, which makes me a terrible companion, travel partner. Uh, thirdly, when I am driving, I can just barely stay awake. So um, <laughs> the only thing that keeps me awake, two things, both of which are annoying, uh, no music keeps me awake. Even my favorite music, as loud as I want it, does not keep me awake. Only talk radio will keep me awake, <laughs> specifically sporting events. And lastly... Uh, as much as I drink coffee, coffee will not keep me awake when I'm driving. The only thing that will keep me awake, besides talk radio, is sunflower seeds, continuously chewed and spit. This is why I'm not a good travel companion. I'm a terrible road trip partner. I listen to talk radio while chewing sunflowers and spitting seeds all the time. And, and, and in spite of all these realities, I am not the worst road trip companion in my family. I'm not. Any one of my three children is by far a worse road trip companion than I. If you've not traveled with small children, let me introduce you to what it's like. First off, you have to put them into the vehicle and take them out. They cannot climb in and out by themselves. You must do it for them. And then once they're in the vehicle, you have to accommodate yourself or get accustomed to what you will hear over the next, I don't know, eight, ten hours. And what you will hear is toddler CDs or videos, uh, the same song over and over Bob the Builder. Uh, you will hear complaining, screaming, some fighting. You will hear a few, depending on how old they are. Are we there yet? You will hear them asking to pee often, especially after you've already just stopped at a restaurant or rest area. Soon after, without fail, as soon as you've left a restaurant or rest area, one of them will have to go to the bathroom. Occasionally, uh, you don't make it to the rest stop in time, and you have to clean them up. Occasionally, one of them will throw up in the car on themselves. Occasionally, they'll let you know, if they're old enough, in the midst of the trip, that they don't really want to go at all. In fact, can we turn around and go home? I never wanted to leave. 
And so what you get in the, in the travel process with a small child is uh, someone who has no idea why they have to go through the process of travel. They just don't get it. They just don't understand why they have to go through the process of travel. They also have no idea how burdensome they are. <laughs> Children are, by nature, terrible road trip partners. And really, the only reason parents take them along is because you have to, because you love them. Uh, really, you love them, and not take them would be child neglect, and you'd get arrested. So um, <laughs> you take them along. And what we see tonight is that the Israelites are bad road trip partners. They really are. God is taking them from Egypt to the Promised Land, out of slavery to the Promised Land, and uh, they contribute nothing and complain a lot. They complain a lot. They can't follow simple directions, and they can't imagine why God is so determined to take them on this route through the wilderness. In the midst, they learn a lot about who they are. They are distrustful children. And as they travel, uh, we learn that they are not ready for their arrival. They are not ready yet for life in the promised land. And what we're going to see tonight is that we're like them. Uh, we, too, want to move from point A to B as fast as possible, especially in life. Uh, what we really want to do, and college is part of the great experiment, we want to move from responsibility-free childhood to adulthood as quickly as we can. In fact, for some of us, college is ultimately, depends on where you're on the spectrum, reliving your childhood or trying to be the, the penultimate adult already. You're either uh, the slacker uh, who does nothing but play video games, or you're trying to save the world already and make a reputation for yourself. Um, all flight children, we don't want to wait. We don't like the process. We want what we want. We're whiny. We're like kids in a van on the way. And we have a lot of learning to do. And we're going to see tonight that because we are like impatient children, God carries us through the wilderness to train us. We're on a trip with God through the wilderness, hard places, so that God can train us. And tonight we're going to ask a little more deeply, why the wilderness? Why do we have to go through the wilderness? And we're going to see that the wilderness is a place where we learn about ourselves. It's a place where we learn his love. And it's a place where we're trained so a place to learn about ourselves, a place to learn his love, and a place where we're trained. So the first thing we see in our text is that the, uh, the Israelites are showing their true colors here. Uh, they're traveling, verses 1 and 2 tell us, uh, through the wilderness. They're on their way to Sinai, but they're in the wilderness. And uh, your conception of the wilderness may be different. I was talking to someone recently. They flew into Pittsburgh the first time. And they're like, is there a city? All I see is trees. Like, this. You can barely see it sometimes if you're, especially from a big city. Like, where is it down there? It's just a forest. There's nothing there. That's uh, nothing compared to what this was like. Uh, this actually reminds me of what my in-laws told me about part of their trip to Alaska. They lived in Alaska for some time. There's a long stretch of road in Alaska on their way from America to Alaska where you're driving through Canada and the road's not paved. It's gravel only. And you have to carry gasoline with you because there's no gas stations for a long, long ways. And uh, this is sort of like that. No resources, no one there, nothing. That's what this kind of wilderness is like. And we learn here that the people themselves are nearsighted. They're nearsighted. That is, they can't see past their immediate past. We see it in verse 3 with their complaint. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. What they're saying is, man, I'd really like to be in Egypt. Wish we'd never left. And they go on and complain, uh, 
We'd love to be back in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Uh, They're nearsighted in the sense that they can't get past their immediate past. They can't get past their bellies. They can't get past their immediate hunger. Uh, They really can't see beyond what they've just experienced and what they really, really want. Even though their home was bad to them. There were slaves there. They were oppressed there. They were abused there. Some of them were murdered there. They're nearsighted. They can't imagine anything better. They're also short-sighted. See it in the rest of verse 3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now that phrase, if you've been following the story, should sound like insane gibberish, right? Uh, God has, through his miraculous, gracious power, saved this people in mass and brought them out. And they're saying, you just brought us out here to kill us with hunger. Really, God took the trouble of bringing you out of slavery so he could bring you out here and let you starve. It's incredibly short-sighted. They can't really imagine what God is delivering them into. They have no vision. They don't understand. They can't see God's saving power and love, and they can't imagine what he's trying to bring them into. And then we learn also about them that their complaints are misdirected. It says in verses 2 and 3 that they think they're complaining against Moses and Aaron. We learn in verses 7 and 8 that they're quite wrong. Uh, We saw in our last uh, text, uh, the last sermon, that uh, the Israelites believed in the Lord and believed in Moses. They are so close in this book that you can't really trust one without the other. And so we find here that when they start complaining to Moses about Moses bringing them out into the desert to kill them, what they're really doing is complaining about God. And God says, why are you grumbling to me? Why are you complaining about me? Uh, They're wrong. God hasn't brought them out here to let them starve. They're blame-shifting. Just because they don't know how to live out here doesn't mean it's God's fault. And, uh, and, And they're altogether wrong in that they can think they can complain against Moses, but not the Lord. Now, I want to be a little empathetic toward them. Uh, Again, the wilderness is the middle of nowhere. Just because they've uh, left Egypt doesn't mean they're equipped to live in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Leaving is hard, as some of you freshmen have learned, perhaps. Uh, It's hard to learn how to live in a new place. Uh, But what we see in this text so far about them is they they don't trust God, they don't know how to live, and they're still slaves to their bellies. They want what they want, and they're willing to complain. And in some ways, they remind me in their complaining of uh, Dash, little Dash from The Incredibles. We watched it a few weeks ago on our retreat. Uh, If you've seen the movie, you remember the scene where uh, missiles have been fired at the plane. The plane is shot down. It explodes at the last minute. They jump out. They fall incredibly thousands of feet. They land in this watery wilderness, and they survive. They survive miraculously. Then the plane fuselage almost falls on them and kills them. And at the last minute, they escape that, and he comes up to the surface, and he begins repeating over and over this phrase, we're dead, we're dead, we survived, but we're dead. (laughs) And this is exactly what the Israelites seem to be doing. We've been rescued, we've been brought out miraculously by God's powerful right hand, but we're dead. We're dead out here. We're going to die. And we're like that very often. Especially for Christians, we, we would say that God has sent his own son to die for us, to bring us to life. And yet our lives are marked out by incessant worry and whining. We worry and whine all the time. 
Uh, Tim Keller has written that worry is not believing God will get it right. It's not believing God's going to get it right. You've got an agenda for your life. He hasn't read it or doesn't care, and he's going to get it wrong. And that bitterness or whining is believing God got it wrong. You read it, God, but you did it wrong. And often, even though we supposedly know that God loves us and cares for us, our lives are filled with worry and whining. We're worried God's not going to give us what we want or what we think we need. We're whining because he hasn't done so already. And uh, this is what we learn about the Israelites and about ourselves, if we're willing to look and be honest about it. Well, at this point, the Israelites have called God's character into question. They have. They basically said, hey, God, you brought us out here to kill us. Uh, That's a pretty strong accusation, right? So at this point, if you uh, perhaps are only slightly familiar with the Old Testament, you would think, oh, this is where this vindictive Old Testament God smashes them into pieces, right? And you'd be surprised because what happens next is without any provocation whatsoever. In verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm going to rain bread on you. They've just, they've just accused God of trying to murder them in the wilderness. I'm setting up this great cosmic trap Why? where I save you and bring you out and get your hopes up, and then I'm going to leave you and let you starve. And that, that would be like the cruelest thing ever, right? Like, imagine doing that to someone. And they're saying, God, you've done that to us. And God says, yeah, I should, I should love you. And that's what he does. We find that the wilderness is a place where they learn God's love. We see this in lots of ways. I'm just going to point out three really quickly. First, in in his daily provision, in verse 4, he promises, I'm going to daily provide for you. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's provision every day. God promises, look, every day I'm going to give bread, except for on the Sabbath. Uh, On the sixth day I'll give you two days. That way you basically get seven days of food, six days of labor. And I will provide for you sufficiently. You will have all that you need. And it goes beyond that. He's, these people are having trouble trusting that he's good, that he's going to provide for them. So what does he do? He says, not only will I give you what you need to live, I'll give you another vision of myself. He doesn't have to do this. In verse 6 and 7, these people who are afraid God's leading them out into the wilderness to abandon them and let them die, God actually shows himself again from the wilderness. He comes from the wilderness, the text says, and shows them his glory that they may know. If you read uh, with us last week, you saw that God has to show the Egyptians who he is that they may know. We would expect by now that the Israelites would know who God is, right? I mean, he's been telling them for chapters. He's been revealing his character for chapters. And they still don't get it. And God has to show them again and again and tell them again and again because this is what our hearts are like. He gives them another vision of himself because he's gracious. And he provides for them. He wants them to see his presence and his power and his goodness. And one last thing I'll point out to about the nature of his love is he gives them a future taste. The daily provision he gives them is called manna, which is literally the word translated for what is it. When they say, what is it, that's the word manna. (laughs) And um, it's pretty funny. Um, But we see in verse 31 that it tastes like honey. And uh, we, we learn a couple things from this, I think, about the nature of God. Uh, God's not out to merely just meet our basic needs. God is God that gives us good gifts. He could have given us them wafers that tasted like soap. Uh, but instead, because they were complaining, potty mouths, here, take some soap. Um, instead he gives them 
honey-flavored wafers to meet their needs. And it was delightful. It was delicious. But there's something else about the honey, and that's that it was a foretaste. It was a foretaste. Uh, the land they were going to was called and promised by God to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Land flowing with milk and honey. That sounds pretty awesome. And uh, God is in this daily provision giving them a foretaste of what it will be like when they're there. It's sort of a down payment, a reminder of what life's going to be like and how good it's going to be there already. And we also have here just a tease, just a hint of Jesus. We read John 6 earlier, or we tried. It's not quite your fault. Should have prepared you. Should have warned you. But if you were able to read it or make sense of it, we have there in John... Uh, Jesus saying, the manna was a gift from God, but the, the true bread of heaven is I, he says, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We have here in the manna an indication of God's ultimate gift to mankind to meet our deepest needs and hunger, which is the person of Jesus. And so we see in the wilderness provision of manna and in the provision of Jesus who comes down that God is not taking us out into the wilderness, not taking us through the wilderness of life in order to abandon us and let us starve. He's committed to meeting us here in the wilderness of life to show us himself, to teach us his love, to show us who Jesus is, to teach us uh, that God is trustworthy and loving, that he's a good father that we can know and that we can trust. And there's one more reason why God takes us out into the wilderness. One, so we can learn what we're like. We're like whiny children who want what we want and don't trust our parents. And what he's like, that he's a good father who's committed to giving us good things graciously and to showing himself and teaching us what he's like. But we also see that the wilderness is a place where we train. It's a place of training. And we see this in verse 4 with the word uh, that the Lord gives to Moses. The Lord says to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven on you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion, that I may test them. Now, I assume you know what the word test means, um, because you've had lots of them. And so if I say I'm going to test you, uh, you immediately probably do one of two things. You, You start getting anxious, because you know you're going to fail, and you start thinking about what happens when you fail, and then you start like thinking about changing your major. And then you start thinking about like plan B and telling your parents that you need another loan. Some of you are like that. You live in light of the worst possible reality. And some of you are thinking, like, bring it on. I'll crush your test. I'm ready for all tests at all times. A few of you are like that. You're, you're just arrogant enough to think you know everything. Um, but that's not this kind of test. That's not this kind of test. This is not a pass-fail test. This is not a test that they can pass or fail, at least not at this point. Uh, because God hasn't, isn't giving them a test right here any, where if they fail, God says, well, it was nice knowing you. You fail. I am indeed going to leave you in the wilderness and let you starve to death. You miserable wretches, you ignorant people, you don't know me. I'm done with you. Um, God has redeemed his people and brought them out because he's committed to them, because he loves them. Um, is there a possibility they're going to fail and reject him? Yes. Is he going to reject them? Uh, no. And uh, this test is in order to train them, to prepare them. Uh, And God basically gives them in verses 22 through 28 very specific instructions. Listen, I'm going to make this easy for you. I'm going to give you bread every single day. 
except for Sunday, the Sabbath, Saturday. You just have to go out and get it. Go gather it. I'm going to provide for you. All you got to do is go get it and come back and eat it. Now, eat it when you get it. Don't keep it because it'll rot. You got it? Yeah, I got it. Oh, you didn't get it. You idiot. You, you kept it. And on the seventh day, you don't have to get anything. Please don't leave. I'm going to give you twice as much on Sunday. It won't stay. These are very specific but very simple instructions. God is preparing them here, training them for obedience, for trust, for a relationship. Uh, these, this isn't rocket science. God's providing and is showing the Israelites that they can trust him. The question is, will they trust him? Can they do this? And they show pretty early on that they can't. They can't follow simple instructions. They can't trust him. Some of them go out on the seventh day, and God's like, oh, my gosh. I made it pretty clear to you. Just get it on Saturday and on the other day, and then rest and do nothing. I'm doing nothing. On the seventh day, I don't even work. I don't give you anything on the seventh day because I'm resting. Do what I do. Rest. So God is showing them clearly what he's like and that they can work and follow his instructions and rest like he is. Uh, what God is doing here is giving them the training wheels version of a relationship. Training wheels version. How many of you use training wheels when you were growing up? Some of you skip training wheels. How many of you have never learned to ride a bike? Come on. There's got to be somebody in this room who never learned to ride a bike. Oh, someone is lying. <laughs> well, if you didn't, it's because you skipped the training wheels version or because you liked pain or your parents didn't mind bandaging your bloody knees up all the time uh, or bloody palms up. Um, because that's what happens if you don't use training wheels. You fall all the time. And God is giving them a training wheels version of a relationship. He's going to give them a much more complicated version of the law, which is still pretty simple in Exodus 20. But right now it's pretty simple. I'm going to feed you, gather it, eat it, trust me. Got it? No, they don't. But what God's preparing them for is a relationship, a trusting, loving relationship where he provides for them every day. They trust for him to provide every day. They learn that he's faithful. They give him thanks. And uh, they're learning how to be his people. They are having to learn how to be in a relationship. And this is where God has us in the wilderness. This is our lives. If you're a Christian, this is what life's all about. Frankly, this is what your life is all about right now. If you're a Christian, you are traveling from the day you trust in Jesus to the day you go to glory, which doesn't happen during this life, by the way, uh, through the wilderness. You are in the wilderness right now. Some of you may feel it more acutely. I am lonely. I'm in desolate places. No one understands me. I certainly feel I'm in the wilderness. Well, even if it's your best day and you feel great right now, if you're a Christian, you're still in the wilderness. And what you need to know is this is the place where God meets you. This is where God is. This is where Christ comes. Christ comes into the wilderness to show you yourself, to show you himself, and to train you how to be in a relationship with him. The wilderness is not a bad place. So what is your attitude toward the wilderness? Really, what's your attitude toward the wilderness? Because uh, you've grown up in a culture, really, where we like being children. Very little responsibility. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. There's... <laughs> That's who we are, right? Or we're going to be super irresponsible adults. Actually, we're going to be super irresponsible adults who can be children at the same time. What we don't want to be is teenagers and children that have to learn. Today, my daughter came in this morning. Uh, Abiel, the other one can't come anywhere yet. Um, she's getting there, though. Uh, Abiel came in, and uh, she was staring at a reflection in, a, in one of our pots in our kitchen, and she said, Daddy, I-, I five or I six? <laughs> 
Abigail, you're two. <laughs> two. I, two. She walked out, came back five minutes later, very confidently. I, four. <laughs> I, four. No, child. Two. And this is who we are as people. This is who we are. So the lens into us. We want to be more. We want to be older and more mature than we really are. And we don't want to go through the process. We don't want to go through the process. We don't want to live in the wilderness. We don't want to relive those hard, painful years of growth. Actually, sorry, that's what life is. And this is where God meets you in the hard, painful years of growth. That is your life. God is showing you who you are and what He's like in making you like Himself. So perhaps you're in the wilderness right now and you're in despair. You're in despair because you're in the wilderness and you're thinking, uh, I'm in the wilderness and I don't have what I need. I don't have what I want. You're like the Israelites looking back. I want those things and I can't live without those things. Actually, God's pretty dedicated to making you sufficient on him, trusting him, and not just the things that you think you need for life. And uh, some of you are thinking, uh, I can do this wilderness thing. Just give me the test. Let me take the test and write it off so I can skip it. I'm pretty confident I don't need this. Just get me on to the next stage. There's no next stage. Next stage is death. <laughs> this is what life's like. It's a wilderness. And uh, in RUF, we have a saying, and I've said it many times, and I'll say it again tonight, and we'll finish with this. Uh, Christianity is not about being right or doing right or being made right. And this is how it applies here. Uh, Christianity is not about being right. Uh, because that's the way we like to think about this test, the wilderness. I, if I just pass the wilderness test, I can skip on, right? If I can just take the test and know the stuff, I can skip on, right? Actually, sorry, you don't, there is no test like that. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with God. There's no test that you can take where you're going to pass this. Do you love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? No. You fail. Okay, keep at it. That's the test. Uh, and some of us think Christianity is all about doing right, doing the right thing. It's about bald obedience. But our text here shows us that we're simply not going to trust God and do what we're supposed to do if we don't know him, if we're not in a relationship with him. If we can't trust him, we won't do what he says. So it's not about just doing right. We can't do that unless we actually know God and trust him. It's about being made right. Christianity is about being made right. And God does this. He does this by bringing us out, by making us his people, like he's done with the Israelites, bringing them out of Israel by the death of the firstborn. Uh, who is Jesus? We are justified by Jesus. We are called to trust him. That John 6 passage talks about the work we're called to do is to believe in him. And now God has us in the wilderness. And it's not a terrible place, friends. It's not. If you're, a, if you're here tonight and you're not a believer, uh, you're not a Christian, you're not sure what Christianity is, I'm talking about the wilderness, you're thinking, I don't think I want anything to do with that. Um, life's hard everywhere. I don't know what alternative reality you'd like to live in, but it's hard everywhere. The promise of the wilderness is it's a place where God is to meet with his people and to make them like himself. It's a good place. And that's what God's doing in the wilderness in your life. Don't run from the wilderness. Don't short-circuit the process. This is where God meets with you to make you like Jesus. All right, let's pray together.